What's up, everybody? We're back again with another episode of Cut Talk Radio. On today's episode, we're going to be doing a little meditation on love and relationships in general. So we got the episode lined up. We're going to start with a quote by Victor Hugo. Then we're going to go into a short story. And then I'm going to give a little story myself. So let's get into it. Victor Hugo is one of the greatest French writers and, and writers, really, of all time. He wrote a lot of great poetry, usually talking about love and things of that nature. And how the human soul tends to yearn for companionship. I mean, it's not really a mystery. I don't think it's a mystery to a lot of people that we do have this inclination to want to be loved. And what that is, is is what we try and describe. <clears throat> you know, we try and describe it in a lot of different ways. And and these different ways are, are expressed sometimes artistically or, or whatever the case. But that's what poetry, that's the purpose that poetry serves is is allowing us to express complex ideas in, in what we would perceive as poetic ways. But yeah, um, but yeah, so let's get into the quote. So Victor Hugo said, The greatest happiness of life is the conviction that we are loved. To be convinced that we are loved. Loved for ourselves, or rather, loved in spite of ourselves. So that last part, you know, to be loved in spite of yourself, you know, um, we sometimes we might get the whether it be through because of insecurities or 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 issues of self esteem or, or rejection, we might build this idea that that we're unlovable, and and it's it's the greatest happiness to be loved with that mentality of thinking that you're unlovable when you think you're unlovable, but then you come across somebody who's still capable of finding interest in you, making you feel this love. That's what Victor Hugo describes as one of the greatest happinesses. And I would agree in a lot of ways. I think it is when we can even love ourselves is an even greater love yourself in spite of yourself is is, is kind of what the idea of a lot of religion is. But it's an interesting idea, you know. And it is in a lot of ways the greatest happiness. I think a very poetic way to put it: the greatest happiness is the conviction. So. To be truly convinced, to really feel in your soul that you're being loved, whatever that means, you know. Uh, we try and put words to these things, but they really are moments in our lives where we, the dots connected, or, or we had a spark in our brain where, like, oh, now I get what people mean when they say to, to feel loved. And, you know, the, again, that's what Victor Hugo describes as one of the greatest happinesses. I think it's a beautiful quote. Yeah, if you're into love or, or anything like that, then definitely check out Victor. And if you like poetry, even more more reason to check it out. So the short story that we'll be covering today comes from uh, Chicken Soup for the Soul. See here, I'll, I'll I'll probably put a picture of the cover. It's by Jack Canfield and Mark Victor Hansen. It's a collection of short stories, and maybe a lot of you have heard about it, or maybe even some of you have read it. But there's various topics, you know, the, the book covers, you know, dreaming, parenting, learning, <clears throat> learning to love yourself. It covers a lot of things and it does it by giving short stories. So I recommend the book to anybody out there who, who might be into poetry and short stories like that. So, again, the story comes from Chicken Soup for the Soul. Let's get into it. 
The story is titled, All I Remember. All I Remember. When my father spoke to me, he always began the conversation with, Have I told you yet today how much I adore you? The expression of love was reciprocated, and in his later years, as his life began to visibly ebb, we grew even closer, if that were possible. At 82, he was ready to die, and I was ready to let him go so that his suffering would end. We laughed and cried and held hands and told each other of our love and agreed that it was time. I said, Dad, after you've gone, I want a sign from you that you're fine. He laughed at the absurdity of that. Dad didn't even believe in reincarnation. I wasn't positive that I did either. <clears throat> Excuse me. But I had many experiences that convinced me that I could get some signal from the other side. My father and I were so deeply connected that I felt his heart attack in my chest at the moment he died. Later, I mourned that at the hospital, and in their sterile wisdom, had not let me hold his hand as he had slipped away. Day after day, I prayed to hear from him, but nothing happened. Night after night, I asked for a dream before I fall asleep, and yet four long months passed and I heard and felt nothing but grief at this time. My mother had died five years before of Alzheimer's. And, though I had grown daughters of my own, I felt like a lost child. One day, while I was laying on a massage table in the dark, quiet room waiting for my appointment, a wave of longing for my father swept over me. I began to wonder if I had been too demanding in asking for a sign from him. I noticed that my mind was in a hyper-acute state. I had experienced an unfamiliar clarity in which I could have added long columns of figures in my head. I checked to make sure I was awake and not dreaming, and I saw that I was far removed from a dreamy state as one could possibly be. Each thought I had was like a drop of water disturbing a still pond, and I marveled at the peacefulness of each passing moment. Then I thought, I've been trying to control the messages from the other side. I will stop that now. Suddenly, my mother's face appeared. My mother, as she had been before the Alzheimer's disease, had stripped her of her mind, her humanity, and 50 pounds. Her magnificent silver hair crowned her sweet face. She was so real and so close, I felt I could reach out and touch her. She looked as she had a dozen years ago, before the wasting had began. I even smelled the fragrance of joy her favorite perfume. She seemed to be waiting and did not speak. I wondered how it could happen that I was thinking of my father and my mother appeared, and I felt a little guilty that I had not asked for her as well. I said, Oh, mother, I'm so sorry that you had to suffer with that horrible disease. She tipped her head slightly to one side, as though to acknowledge what I had said about her suffering. Then she smiled, a beautiful smile and said very distinctly, but all I remember is love. And she disappeared. I began to shiver in the room suddenly gone cold, and I knew in my bones that the love we give and receive is all that matters and all that is remembered. Suffering disappeared. Love remains. Her words are the most important I have ever heard, and that moment is forever engraved on my heart. I have not yet seen or heard from my father, but I have no doubt that someday, when I least expect it, 
he will appear and say, Have I told you yet today that I love you? Story by Bobby Probstein. Tragic. In some way. But I think it... I think it really... Captures what love is. Which is... Some universal principle. And, and that goes into... You know, the story or the excerpt that I wanted to share here. I think one way people, you know, people often tend to tend to mix up, I think, lust and love and what they desire in a person for what they look for in somebody that they would potentially love or something like a lifelong partner, for example. But I think this is a misconception or it's it's a it's a way to it's a way to make. It's a way to justify chasing after everything you lust for, in some sense, by calling it love. And that's not always the case, but that's one case that seems to be happening at it. That seems to be happening very often nowadays. So again, back to the story, you know, the person very close with their father. And you can imagine, well, first it's a blessing to be able to have your parents for that long of a time, I feel like. But also... To know that you're headed towards this moment where the ones that you love, regardless of how much you love them, they have to leave you. Or you have to go on continuing without them. Is a reality that people often try to avoid. Or they look at it as, this is not something I should worry about. And it's not, but but worry to worry is to allow it to cause some some abnormal anxiety or something like that. But there's a very normal urgency about life in the sense that we should treat our seconds as gold because they are worth more than anything that we can quantify, I feel like. You know, and and we, again, love helps you see that in some ways when you, as the person in the story, have a, a loved one that's, on death's door and you you know you you know that you're getting ready to let go of something that you really don't want to let go of and it's because the time has passed you know at once you were a kid and and then you grew up and then the person got older and maybe you remember when they were at a younger age and then as the person in the story says about his mother you know they remember them we as we often do i think you know you remember the person as a young, as younger, per se, which is an interesting thing. And I, I think I've, I can remember times in my life where this happened. And, and it's often portrayed in movies even where, where we, people see each other as the younger version of themselves, which is something like remembering them at the prime of their life. Uh, and in a, in a way to avoid the aging process, you know, trying to come to grips with the fact that time, time is really the the defining factor. But again, I think the story encapsulates that perfectly. And then even once it's happened, being in that painful state of now you've let go and then, you know, wanting a sign or wanting love to continue into, by, by signs or by some way, you know, but in, as the author says, it becomes apparent to him that <clears throat> it might have been a selfish request 
that in the last moment he would ask for something like a sign from his father who was just about getting ready to to find out what's on the other side of life, which is interesting. But I think, again, it encapsulates the two principles of love is love is time, awareness, and urgency, but also this desire from the person of like, why would you want a sign from your father in the first place? Well, because this is love. What is love? Love is the force that gives us. Love in some ways is man's superpower. Human superpowers. We can love each other. And that can be something that can change somebody's life. For the good. If if it's used properly. But love can also be manipulated and cause great evil. But that's just the nature of love is when something is a principle of nature as a force that we can't define, then then it has those extreme consequences because people will often become unaware and, and be controlled by those things. As Carl Jung put it, you know, what what is unconscious will rule you or what you have yet to make conscious will rule you and you will call it fate. So when you're not conscious of how we can fall in love and all these other things, then you might be doomed to to having that rule you and then you call it fate. But it's an interesting thing to think about. So hopefully you guys enjoyed the short story. Make sure you guys check the book out. Chicken Soup for the Soul. 10 out of 10, I recommend it. So yeah, we're going to go on to this. Again, this meditation of the current state of affairs, the current state of love, I guess you could call it. All right, so it begins like this. I remember growing up and love was quite literally in the air. It felt like there was a romance to life. Since I was young, I always remembered having a crush and what that meant. In some sense, it was my first introduction to wonder. Because when you have a crush on somebody, you have this fascination. And not only for the physical appearance that they have, but it's something about the person or, or something about the way you perceive them. Or maybe something inside of you that sees something inside of them. But it calls to you. And this this idea of a crush is this built up admiration for the person. And depending on how you perceive the relationship even. Some ideas in some ways saying I want this person to be mine. Right? And again this is all this all comes from the initial you know, being a young child and just the natural attraction or wonder, curiosity, and that manifesting itself as, as a crush or what we know as a crush. And then understanding the metaphysical attraction to somebody, you know, whether they be... Because as a kid, I don't know how much you can make good on a judgment of physical appearance. You know, I think that's more of an adult thing later on where we start to harp on physical appearances more but I think as a child you know because it was more of an innocent crush it would be more of the spiritual so again this is where my earliest memories come from and again this is where the idea of love being in the air and romance is like when you're young life seems to be romantic in some ways there's a romance even with life but again something that calls to you about the person you know 
Sometimes we're aware of what this is, and sometimes we aren't. You know, some people would call this a preference, for example. And again, I think this is a later adaptation of of what we would consider parameters or borders for the type of individual that we would like to be in a relationship with. But initially, I think the idea of a crush is that it's not out of your control versus choosing a partner where it's more of meeting a criteria versus a natural attraction. So we used to have a neighboring family where I lived. It was a mother and two daughters. One of them was my age and the other one was the younger sister. And I remember the mother used to treat them real bad, you know. Used to hit them and I used to hear them yelling and things like that. And as an adult, when you look back at it, you know, not in a judgmental way, but just in trying to understand what that situation would cause. Trying to understand the environment of a household like that and things like that. You know, there's more to consider. But again, I remember that situation. And um, looking back now as an adult, this makes me wonder in some sense because I think what we're attracted to in people a lot of the ways, what what we're attracted to tends to come from a lot of the earlier adaptations of of ourself. Like a psychologist would say, um, a lot of the de- the developmental stages of life are in the earlier stages of life where it's like the standards for the rest of your life comes from youth so I say all this to say that looking back at it now it makes me wonder if this is what shaped my later affinity for what I would call broken people or people that I would perceive as broken you know this attraction to somebody in the sense of oh I can fix them or or they feel like nobody loves them I want to be the one to love them like this this idea came from, I think, now looking at it is maybe that's what shaped that. But again, this is just trying to understand the origins of love again. Yeah, so broken people seemingly broken. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. In other words, you know, you come to be attracted to people that you feel that you could love in a way that they're missing. You know, it's like, uh, for example, you know, somebody who's abused physically, you feel like, well, I can't save them by protecting them physically, maybe. But I can I can show them that even a beaten person with bruises and marks and all over them may even perceive themselves as something less because of this treatment. I can show them that they're still worthy of love. Uh, for some reason, that benefits me. I don't know. I don't know what that means, but that's... You know, this perception of love is that love is not just necessarily what the person can do for me but where 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 can i love the most responsibly in some sense it's like who requires this love that i'm capable of and this goes away from biology you know this is more of a metaphysical understanding of a relationship but this is just again a meditation on love and relationships as the title suggests um so, yeah, in a lot of ways, the situation reminded me of, you know, like the trope of Cinderella, you know, this idea of as a child, that's what was it? Well, that, that fascination, that idea is what inspired the wonder that eventually manifested as a crush, you know, and then, um, you know, like in the story of Cinderella, Cinderella's arbitrary, in a lot of ways, Cinderella is arbitrarily mistreated. You know, it's like the reason is given, she's, the outlier, you know, it's like the sisters and then the outsider. 
Okay, but that's not a good reason. Or it's just, it's not a justify. It's just a parameter, but it's not a good enough reason to treat somebody bad. So again, it seems to be she was just dealt a bad hand. In a lot of ways, I think falling in love with somebody perceived as broken is recognizing that you see that they were dealt a bad hand. So you feel like you could make their hand good if you introduce love, which is, I don't know, something to think about. I don't know if that's necessarily right or wrong. Um, but yeah, you know, I think identifying that and then wanting to be the knight in shining armor is like it's all this trope of, of being a heroic with your love. Not only being a partner, but also being somebody's light, of being the ray of hope with the love you offer. It's like I think we all know we have preferences, you know, we don't necessarily have to act on them. We don't have to always choose the person who fits our preference. Even though it may seem logical to do so, it's like, well, why would I be with somebody who's not exactly what I want? And well, the very simple answer to that is, how do you know exactly what you want? A lot of the times it's like what I don't want. I'm not too sure that people actually know what they want. I think they comfortably want to have a list of things to say, this is what I want. These are my standards. Because for some reason, we see that people with standards define boundaries. In other words, are somehow more in control of themselves. I don't know. I don't know. But I don't think we necessarily know what we want all the time. Yeah. In terms of relationships. Like following your preferences too hard might even be counterproductive in terms of loves. uh, In terms of having a loving relationship. Yeah, but again, this idea of the heroic love, it makes me wonder if it's if it's an ego thing. You know, just like um, just like the story, going back to the story, you know, the person says wanting a sign is maybe selfish. You know, even though he didn't really mean it selfishly, he meant it as a, as a way to say, I love you so much that I want you to come back to me even after life. But then he wonders if that's an ego move. If that's a selfish request. And that's, you know, heroic love in some way has the same dilemma where it's like, okay, well, you seem to be doing something heroic, but are you merely feeding your ego? Are you merely trying to prove to yourself that, or trying to tell yourself that you're the hero of this story or somebody's story? Again, maybe you perceive yourself as somebody who's capable of the love that they need, but do you know the love that they're missing, really? And do you know the love that you're capable of? But I think this is a trip that we should all take as humans, you know, uh, going down memory lane, get back to the beginnings of roads that have been paved decades ago, you know, like in this case, love, you know, following that road back to moments where you can really identify like maybe this is what or this is how or if I can extract the principles from this situation, it'll help me understand why I make decisions now as an adult, just something that you should consider maybe. But yeah, moving on from the idea of love, you know, going into going into philosophy and how authors of the past and poets of the past, as Victor Hugo in the beginning, have done or tried to do. You know, we live in interesting times where we're we're very technolo- technologically advanced, and and this can be perceived as a good thing or a bad thing depending on your your perception of it, but or depending on your attitude on technology, really. But I just want to acknowledge here that one thing that makes an author or a poet or, or something like that really great is is their universality. You know, the ability to create a setting that's described by the principles, really. It's like you can go to a place in your mind of a mindset rather than a location. 
you know, like Nietzsche does a good way of doing it. It's like, I don't know if I can imagine every single setting of every single scene of every single Nietzsche book, but I can definitely be in the mindset of the people that are in that story. And that's an interesting thing. And that's something to consider when you're telling a story. Or let's say you wanted to be a good author in today's time and you wanted to express how, how we're doing. You know, let's say, for example, you wanted to go back to ancient societies that, you know, they just painted on cave paintings and you have to use their system to communicate it. Communicate, you know, oh, we have machines now. Well, how would you do that? How would you tell them we have machines now? Well, would you just show them the machines maybe? But they might just go crazy and think it's magic. So let's say we're trying to introduce the concept first. So how would you describe it? You know, uh, well, first you got to well, first to describe something, you got to understand principles, its concepts. You know, what is it made of? Machines recreate natural processes. In other words, you know, they try and recreate nature. Uh, or as we know it, because everything that we understand is nature. So whatever a computer could do has to be through some principle of nature, whether it be at a better, you know, what we acknowledge in machines is that they think better than humans or at least they're they're capable of computing at a faster and higher level than than humans you know so yeah whatever that means you know describing a machine again to somebody who requires a drawing is like well you would have to say something like or draw something like well it's a machine but it's a thing so it's kind of like an animal but but it's artificial so it's built but it does something you know so, like, you, let's say they're hunting fish. It's like, you know, it's like machines are good at doing what humans need done at the time at an accelerated rate in some sense. One way to put that, if it makes any sense, is like to somebody who's fishing in a village, let's say they take hours to count the stock for the day of the fish. Well, a calculator to them is only a fish counting machine if that's all they need to count because that's the only service. That's the only purpose it serves. So again, machines just improve whatever humans are doing or need done in a circumstance. So understand that. And and that's why it's interesting that artificial intelligence is coming out right now. It's like, do people need this extra intelligence? Well, that seems to give the perception that people are not intelligent enough today when we might just be. So we might just need to use our brains a little bit more. Than just encouraging people to go into the metaverse right away. But yeah, going back to this. So again, you know, machines do what people can do, but can't do at some level. You know, a Mars rover, for example. You know, it's like humans can go to space. They can go to Mars. It just takes a lot of time and a lot of resources. So you just send a robot and, you know, you can get it done. See the example right there. Okay. Uh, But yeah, one of the most prominent machines of our time, however, is a cell phone. And in some sense, a, a cell phone is another copy of yourself. Uh, just as you have the physical body and then you have the mental self or your perspective of the mind. And then the phone creates a third external self, especially when you have some social media presence. But also anyways, because, you know, you can either refer to knowledge that you see, logical conclusions based off your perception, based off thought, or you can outsource all that responsibility to the phone you know i don't have to think i'll just look it up you know i don't have to figure it out i'll just look it up so again it does something that people do but just at a better level or at a higher level i guess in some sense it creates a copy of ourselves you know it creates another perspective completely different self 
a self that is governed by principles that we've arbitrarily created in a digital society. You know, and this digital society is called social media. And again, it seems that this is an entirely different dimension of humanity even. It seems to be the worst parts of people. You know, and what happens when you see the worst parts of people at such a high occurrence is you start to think that people are bad by nature or they're evil by nature. And whether people are evil or good by nature is in principle some fundamental question. But however, I would argue that we're not good or bad. We're whatever we choose to be in the moment. So if you want to be good, just choose to be good at every moment. With everything you do, with your thoughts, with your actions, with your beliefs, etc. You know, and if I want to be cynical here with social media, I could say that social media has single-handedly destroyed social relationships in humans. And not only has it destroyed society in some sense, but it's destroyed the social relationships that we've worked on thousands of years through the process of evolution, through the process of becoming familiar. And, you know, this is a generalization. It's not entirely true. But, you know... I read a statistic somewhere, and I'll just see if I could edit it in a picture of it, where I think about 30% of people now who are married, which is, you know, some measure, but it's the data that we have, are have met online, you know. So, again, relying more on the social, the metaverse, the online universe, for even to pick a partner to say that, well, I know myself. This is what people are saying usually when they're online dating is I know myself. I can pick a partner the best by creating parameters. And you get to see up front what the person is about, what they like. If they have a bio, you know, you get to see some information about them. So it's like you get the information without having to ask so many questions, you know, and, and in some sense that's saving time. And it helps at least with the initial and it helps at least answer the initial question of, am I interested in this person at all? You know, without having to break the ice. But I think the ice-breaking process is very important, and it's essential in some, in some sense, you know. And it's, it's discouraged because people fear rejection so deeply. You know, nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants to feel stupid. Like, oh, you know, I went up to that girl, and I said, hey, I think you're beautiful. Can I take you out? And she said, no, in my face. Maybe that happens a few times. But the thing is, rejection is a good measure for something it's like it's it should not be the measure of yourself it should not be oh well if i get rejected then i'm not a good person or i'm not worthy of love no that shouldn't be the measure but it should remind you that if you feel rejected in that instance that that means that there's some work to do to get you into a position in life where you can be a more desirable person maybe that indicates that you do want to be desired so what does that mean? Well, it means that you can take steps to work on being a more desirable person. Well, society tells you how to do that. Uh, at least to some degree. It's like, well, you got to move up the societal ladder. You got to become somewhat successful. And, and success is, is defined by different parameters. But at the same time, finding what you truly love, things that you're passionate about. Because in that space, you'll find people that are probably more compatible with you to begin with. You know, you'll find... You know, if you're into women, you'll find women that are more aligned with your interests, you know, or maybe they have common principles with you because of the field of study or even not. Maybe just in general, you move up, you move up tax brackets, you move up 
you become more confident in yourself because you you focus on a hobby or you focus on a career that you can do successfully so that helps build some social confidence but again that's why just going back to these are principles and these are experiences that are lost through the online dating process and and in some sense it's like well it helps the people who are socially awkward yes but how much should we help people that are socially awkward how much should we encourage them to tackle that you know me being somebody who's a pretty socially awkward person myself and very much so an introvert and i prefer isolation but you know i've had my fair share of relationships up to this point you know and whether it be you know one-nighters or, or long relationships or, or temporary relationships or whatever the case but you know it is a fascinating thing to think about how how we do have more access today to people you know you can swipe right on 50 chicks in one sitting you know and then maybe three of them hit and it's like well that's a painful process in real life to get rejected 47 times you know so it's a lot easier to just go through it online but again it's just an interesting thing to think about and i think it's something to consider when you're when you're in that world you know but yeah i don't know i don't know i think today you know this conversation stems from the way that today people view relationships i think a lot of people view it as something that they can get something from and that's fine but that that's some one thing and i think that's separate from what a relationship is so so yeah, this last story comes from a book called Greek Myths, Tales of Passion, Heroism, and Betrayal by Shoshana Kirk. The story is titled Pygmalion. When the women of Cyprus refused to worship Aphrodite, the goddess churned them into prostitutes. After that, the king of Cyprus, Pygmalion, gave up on looking for a wife and turned himself towards other pursuits. For a king, he was a talented sculptor and he wanted to work on a female figure, carving it from ivory, the color of freshly fallen snow. When he finished, he had created a woman whose beauty surpassed that of any mortal. Pygmalion often caressed the sculpture, running his fingers over the curves he'd so delicately worked. How quickly one's hand slid across the surface, he thought. He squeezed her waist, certain his fingers sank flesh. Being careful not to bruise her. He gave his statue gifts, seashells, polished gems, parakeets in cages, lilies, amber. He draped her in sensual fabrics, placed gems upon her fingers and chains around her neck, adorned her with earrings and ribbons. He preferred her naked and pure, though. And he even made her a bed of down. How chaste she was, he thought. How unlike the women of Cyprus. It was as if she could move, but only modesty held her back. When the feast day of Aphrodite arrived, Pygmalion dutifully sacrificed in her honor and prayed. Unable to bring himself to ask for what he really wanted, Pygmalion whispered to the goddess, I'd like a wife like the statue. He went home to his ivory companion and couldn't resist a quick kiss. He breathed upon the cool ivory curve of her neck when he pressed his lips against hers, he was sure he felt warm. He pressed himself against her thigh, certain it yielded just a bit. Or was he going mad? Let me do it once more, he thought. Just a nibble on the ear. I'm sure the texture is softer than before. Just a kiss on the cheek. 
I'm sure the color is rosier than before. Pygmalion lost himself in desire, and then two dark eyes looked upon him. How could stone ever be transformed to flesh? Was it the sheer weight of longing? Was it persistence? Was it folly of believing so completely? Doesn't matter. Aphrodite attended the wedding. So yeah, it's a Greek myth, the story of Pygmalion. Um, so yeah, let's break that down from the beginning. I mean, it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting story, right? So first off, we got an interesting situation. You know, it says, when the women of Cyprus refused to worship Aphrodite, the goddess turned them into prostitutes. Prostitutes here being a symbol of maybe women not fitting of being married, whatever that means. Not of the standard of a woman who deserves marriage. Again, whatever that means. But implied through the story's context. And then you have the case of Pygmalion. You know, he's not just any regular guy. He's a king. And if he wanted to, he could indulge in all the women, you know. But he chooses not to because he's looking for a wife. And there's also an interesting aspect, which is that he's a talented sculptor. So on top of being a king, he's also very in tune with his artistic expression. He's also a very artistic man, a very expressive man. So there's some duality there, which is maybe why he respects or why he values the motherly aspect of a woman in that sense. Or that which is, or the idea of the woman that is worthy of being married. But I think the story encapsulates, again, falling in love with what you've created. This is what we do. You know, we sculpt, we have somebody who's a, who we perceive as a canvas. And we sculpt them to fit our likings, you know, whether it be by, by our imaginations of what they are. You know, we'll see this where friends will say things like, what do you see in them? Or or something like that. And then it's like, well, maybe when somebody's in love with something, they're unable to realize the madness or the flaws or, or they're able to convince themselves in their mind that the person is somehow perfect. You know, through their own creation and falling in love with the cre- something they created in their mind rather than the reality, which is who the person really is versus who you perceive them to be. But yeah, I think that's just, um, that's an interesting story there. And again, I'll put the book up. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a reminder that again, love is something that we should not take lightly. And all this is to say that if you find yourself often in situations where your relationships aren't working out the way that you would like them to or things aren't always going your way in in terms of love well first off understand that that's a very that love is a very first off i would say understand that love is very complex so it's going to be difficult in the first place and it's probably going to take some some amount of effort to to get it right so so try your best to to improve yourself and then through improving yourself maybe you'll you'll be able to understand what it is that you're actually looking for but yeah, with that being said, that's all we got for you today. So yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. As always, be safe, take care, and peace.